You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda, recording from Washington, D.C. And I'm your co-host, Katie Putz, coming to you from Maryland. And Katie, you've just returned from a trip to Taiwan. How was that? It was great. Taiwan is a really interesting place, and now is uh, quite the time to be there. Indeed. Uh, Taiwan was actually my last trip before COVID-19. I returned to the United States on March 10th, 2020. Uh, so I am looking forward to my next trip to Taipei. Uh, and uh, certainly Taiwan is at the center of a lot of what we talk about on this podcast. So I, I hope that was uh, that was a great trip for you. But Katie, it's, it's that time of year again, uh, i.e. November, uh, which means a lot of summits around the world. And I'm not just talking about COP27, which just wrapped up in Egypt. Uh, but of course, we've had... Uh, for the first time in a while, uh, three major international summits take place in three different uh, Southeast Asian states. We had the ASEAN summits hosted by Cambodia, the chair of ASEAN wrapping up its chairmanship, uh, the G20 leader summit in Bali, Indonesia, right after that. And then finally, the APEC summit in Bangkok, Thailand. Uh, there has been a lot of in-person diplomacy uh, happening in, in Southeast Asia after, after a long time. And uh, I thought we'd give our listeners a little bit of uh, our reflections on what exactly transpired. Uh, there's obviously a lot of ground to cover, and we won't get into the granularities of the various communiques. Um, but I think we can maybe treat this more as just of an update uh, for for the various bits and pieces uh, around around all of these summits. I think maybe the obvious place to start um, is the elephant in the room, the really the, the unsurprising geopolitical cloud that looms over really any multi multilateral engagement uh, at this point, which is uh, Russia's ongoing war against Ukraine. Uh, and that continued to cast a pall uh, on these summits uh, in the region where um, certainly the United States and China's views on how they would approach the issue were being closely scrutinized. Uh, but of course, at the G20, uh, that was a particular consideration for the host country, Indonesia, which uh, loudly emphasized, uh, including Prime Minister uh, Jokowi, uh, Jokowi Dodo, who said that, you know, the G20 is not a political forum. Let's keep things neutral and not talk too much about the war. Uh, but of course, the third paragraph of the G20 communique uh, is all about the war in Ukraine and its and its terrible effects. Um, mm -hmm. So, Katie, maybe just starting there, what what sort of jumps out to you about, you know, all of these months later? Uh, how is Asia now coping with this war? What can we take away from these summits about the role that the Russo-Ukrainian war uh, is 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 having in the region. Yeah, so I mean, I mean, I think at the onset of the war in Ukraine in, in February, I don't know that any of us really predicted one that it would go on as long as it has. Uh, two, that the Ukrainians would put up quite the fight that they've had, and and for our reader, for our readers and our listeners here at the Diplomat, that it would matter so much to Asia what was happening in Europe. Um, and I think that's obvious from what happened at the G20. Uh, as our listeners will probably know, Russian President Vladimir Putin did not attend the G20. He dispatched uh, Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov instead. And I think that was obviously done uh, to save Putin from um, several upbraidings, possibly from, from other leaders uh, in the G20 uh, and in Asia, and kind of save him from, from potential embarrassment in those forms, especially uh, given, as you noted, the third paragraph of the G20's uh, communique after, after the summit focuses on Ukraine. It, it mentions directly the UN votes uh, regarding Ukraine. It also, uh, I think, interestingly notes that most countries... Uh, see what's the exact quote most, most members, members yeah. strongly condemned the war in ukraine and so obviously that was done because 
Russia is a member, so Russia probably was not condemning itself. But the fact that that made it into the final statement, I think, indicates that nearly everyone else, if not everyone else, uh, felt the same. Now, I know you had um, an interesting thought that we, we discussed in our uh, pre-recording discussion uh, regarding India's influence on that statement. So I'm, I'm kind of curious to hear a little bit more about um, how you think India influenced this statement and what that maybe says about India's shifting position on on Ukraine, if it's shifting. Yeah, so, well, well, so the first thing is I don't think India's position is necessarily shifting. It's just interesting that it appears to be evidence of, you know, India kind of taking the lead at the G20 on this particular line, which is, you know, one of the things that Modi said at the SCO summit to Putin, which we talked about, which was sort of interpreted as India sort of criticizing Russia, although I think it was much more general than that and probably was overread by people that thought it was being, uh, you know, overly critical of Russia. But, you know, Modi said that, uh, you know, um, now must not be an era of war. It was it was something like that he said to Putin. And then the G20 statement, uh, the sentence that appears is today's era must not be of war. Uh, and so it's just an mm -hmm. interesting kind of parallel there between what Modi told Putin and then what shows up in the G20 statement. Amid a lot of scrutiny still, especially here in the United States, about India's sort of fence-sitting position on, on Russia's war, which is, of course, you know, as we've talked about on this podcast before, due to a variety of reasons. Uh, the other thing that I think is interesting at these summits is uh, Ukraine's role, right? Uh, so, um, you know, here I think we'll have to talk a little bit about the ASEAN summits, uh, the East Asia summit, and uh, the G20, because at the ASEAN summit, um, so, you know, Volodymyr Zelensky, uh, the Ukrainian uh, president, of course, was widely expected to speak. That didn't end up happening because of consensus being blocked. And, uh, you know, the strong suspicion that I suspect is right is that Myanmar uh, blocked consensus on this issue because Myanmar is, of course, uh, continues to be under, uh, you know, led by a military junta, which was, of course, one of the primary issues that came up at this ASEAN summit more generally. But Myanmar didn't want to give Zelensky a platform uh, at the ASEAN summit, despite, you know, Cambodia, which, uh, you know, our our colleague Sebastian Strangio at The Diplomat wrote a good article about sort of Cambodia's kind of position on Ukraine, which is very interesting, like given Cambodia's history, the Cambodians actually empathize quite a bit with Ukraine, despite mm -hmm. the fact that Cambodia is quite close to China, which, of course, is much more supportive of Russia. So the geopolitics here, I think, were quite interesting in the ASEAN context. But then Zelensky did actually address the G20, uh, right? He made sort of references to the G19, explicitly excluding Russia. Mm -hmm. um, but what's interesting, too, here is that I think, you know, this G20 summit, uh, and, you know, I think many commentators have made this point, is that it's the first G20 state, uh, you know, the first G20 leaders meeting that is taking place under these particularly difficult conditions of you know, great power discord, which raises a question more generally is that, you know, can an organization like the G20 continue to be useful under under the current geopolitical environment where great powers do disagree? And I actually think that this summit outcome, uh, the fact that, you know, the communique was able to include a paragraph on the war, even if, uh, you know, there were varieties of views within the G20 on, on Russia's mm -hmm. war, I think it, it's a positive sign. I mean, you know, there's there's no shortage of global challenges that the G20 was, of course, set up to address still. So I'm wondering what your view on that is, Katie. Do you agree or, or do you think that's potentially not what we should be taking away from this? Um, I, I think I would broadly agree. I think there's certainly space within the G20 as in any uh, international forum for some level of dis disagreement. Now, how long that can continue before it ruptures is is unclear. I think maybe the example of the G7, which used to be the G8, is maybe um, uh, an example worth looking at. Uh, you know, Russia was was kicked out, removed, no, is no longer in the G7, eight, uh, and and so you know, I think 
within the context of the G20, which is nominally the 20 largest economies, it's not technically the 20 largest economies, those shift that shifts year to year, and the G20 remains pretty um, stagnant, uh, in terms of membership, um, that, you know, you could foresee a future in which Russia is is pushed out. But I, I think we're nowhere near that precipice. Um, I think, many leaders within the G20 certainly see the value of engaging. Um, and, and obviously this year's return to in-person diplomacy uh, is seen very favorably by these leaders. And I think this gives us certainly as, as commentators much more to work with and much more to look at um, in terms of, of engagements. Uh, certainly some of the uh, side uh, encounters, uh, and I'm thinking specifically here about the Trudeau-Gi uh, encounter, um, tell us things about relations between these states that we can't get from from not having these meetings. And so, you know, if nothing else, uh, a large forum like this that isn't as massive as, say, the United Nations, uh, still fairly a small group, uh, gives room for all of those countries to engage with each other on some of these touchy issues, um, either, you know, officially up front mm -hmm. or or at least on the sidelines. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I think the value of this continues, even if there there is some awkwardness, you know, in that same statement, the G20 um, mentions Ukraine, but also says, you know, this is not a security forum. So, so it's sort of a like, this isn't the place to solve this, but we need to acknowledge that it's happening. And I think that's obviously because of the massive impact it's had on global economies. Talk mm -hmm. about, uh, you know, global food security in Ukraine. Um, those are pretty prominent issues across Asia. So I think there was no avenue to avoiding it. Um, and they sort of found a diplomatic way to include it. Um, the Russians are obviously not particularly happy with that, but I, I don't I don't know that they get a say uh, in terms of whether that's included or not. Yep. No, I think I think I think that all sounds right. I mean, on on the issue of membership uh, in organizations, we should mention for listeners that uh, we're going to have to start getting used to calling ASEAN an eleven member block because ASEAN did agree in principle finally to admit uh, Timor Leste uh, as as the eleventh member of the block, which has been an issue that's been pending uh, for a long time since I believe twenty eleven was when uh, Timor Leste originally applied after gaining independence in two thousand and two. It marks the first new member in ASEAN since uh, Cambodia joined in nineteen ninety nine. Uh, and so that's uh, that's a um, I think an important benchmark to sort of uh, you know point that out. Um, I mean, briefly before we move on to talking about uh, the Biden Xi summit, which uh, which I think you know we will have to talk about um, a, a little bit at least. Um, I think it's just worth noting that the the ASEAN summit. I mean, the issue of Myanmar is still obviously looming really large over ASEAN, mm -hmm. and there's a variety of views. The sort of five point consensus uh, has really gone nowhere, um, and ASEAN can't even get you know, around to agreeing on whether or not Myanmar's participation in the group should be suspended or not. Uh, and mm -hmm. so unfortunately for, uh, you know, for those of our listeners who, who are tracking uh, the still very dire situation in Myanmar, uh, there's really no progress, uh, you know, no meaningful progress to be reported out of the uh, ASEAN summit. So that's just, uh, you know, um, unfortunate. Uh, but okay, I mean, going back to, you know, the virtues of in-person diplomacy, um, I think it's fair to say that the first in-person meeting between Biden and Xi uh, went pretty well. If you're somebody that likes to see the leaders of the United States and China actually have a somewhat productive discussion. I mean, it certainly casts, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it certainly can be juxtaposed with the, uh, you know, that meeting that took place in Alaska uh, way back when at the start of the Biden administration, where uh, we had a little bit of a shouting match. And so, you know, some people have called this a reset in the U.S.-China relationship. I don't think I would go that far but mm -hmm. I think it is showing that, uh, you know, these two leaders who, of course, you know, when when she 
uh, you know, before before she became president, when he was effectively vice president, of course, when Biden was vice president, she and Biden have known each other for a while. And now they're, of course, leading their respective countries. So having this opportunity to meet in person uh, was, I think, uh, a good opportunity. Uh, it, it, it went better than it could have. Um, it also, I think, indicates that some of the U.S.-China tension that had built up after Speaker Pelosi's visit to Taiwan in August has now sort of, if not fully dissipated, at least dissipated enough that the U.S.-China relationship can be somewhat uh, back on back on the rails. Uh, you know, going back to that, mm. you know, going back to the guardrails that the Biden administration has been talking about. Uh, so overall, you know, I thought it, uh, I thought like the readout suggested that the ship has been righted for the moment. Uh, certainly, there's no shortage of divergences between the two countries and disagreements but i think um both both biden and she were able to show the region that their differences weren't necessarily going to steamroll um everything else that's happening in asia which has been a frequent concern in the region that great power competition between the united states and china will subsume everything else in asia uh and the other thing that a lot of people have of course pointed out is that uh biden apparently got she to agree to reiterate the statement that china signed on to back in january this year that a nuclear war should never be fought and can never be won, uh, which did not mm -hmm. appear in the Chinese diplomatic readout of the meeting, uh, but the White House did talk that up, which, you know, on balance strikes me is, again, another positive development. Uh, but I'm wondering, uh, you know, what were your impressions of that of that meeting between Biden and Xi? Yeah, I mean, nothing in the meeting readouts or, or the remarks really offers any radical departures from the kind of current tense but, but stable trajectory. You know, it's somewhere short of conflict, but it's not really close enough to cooperation uh, in in the US readout Biden you know emphasized the the competition not conflict trope which which pops up a lot in in US talking points regarding China these days uh, and emphasized collective action on transnational issues like climate change um, but at the same time Biden reiterated US policies regarding uh, Xinjiang which is condemnation and Taiwan which is a preference for the quote-unquote status quo and so you know the fact that that these were mentioned in the meeting sort of went along in in a, a an expected fashion for for diplomatic engagements I think is a positive sign now it's not a huge leap forward I think there's a lot of points of tension and, and difference between the U.S. and China that remain unresolved um, just because they, the United States and China have such different ways of viewing the world at this point. Um, and, and obviously, I, I, having just returned from Taiwan, Taiwan is, is a major point of that. Uh, but, I, but I think uh, I would agree with you that, that some of that tension that had, had certainly ratcheted up after Pelosi's visit has, has dissipated to a degree that we we've sort of returned at least between the U.S. and China to that, that status quo. Um, and so hopefully there can be more improvements from there. But like I said, there's an awful lot to, to get through. Yeah. And of course, uh, you know, these meetings were happening uh, after the midterms in the United States and the 20th Party Congress in China. So she sort of returning in, uh, uh, you know, I mean, obviously, it's it's really interesting to see, you know, Xi Jinping without a mask meeting all of these international leaders in a, in a mm -hmm. summit setting. Right. That's something we haven't seen in a number of years now. So you sort of have this, you know, she newly confident having sort of sealed in his third term and his status as leader for life effectively going overseas and pursuing China's goals. And I think here's where, you know, she's messaging to the region again is, is important to emphasize. Right. I mean, we we saw all of the classic, you know, uh, PRC talking points on helping Asia grow on Asia's own terms, uh, you know, China contributing to the region's successes. 
Uh, and I think, Katie, this might be a good segue, actually, to sort of close out our conversation today by talking about the final of these uh, many summits that that just took place in the region, which is the APEC summit, uh, where mm-hmm. she actually was supposed to give a speech in person, but then he couldn't do that. And then basically, you know, his written speech was was, was sort of given out. Um, but I'm wondering if you want to sort of uh, just wrap up for our listeners uh, what the big takeaways are uh, from the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation uh, meeting in Bangkok. Yeah, so the you know the the theme that Thailand had set out for uh, the summit, I think, is really important to keep in mind when looking at the the ultimate leader's sort of statement after that. Um, it was open, connect, and balance. Uh, you know, the APEC, which is the Asia Pacific Economic Cooperation, uh, has twenty one member economies in the Pacific Rim countries. So all these countries border the Pacific. Uh, they use the term economy as opposed to member, which is why um, entities like Taiwan are economies within APEC, even though they're not recognized as as members of, say, the UN or something like that. And so it's it's interesting to watch Taiwan at these forums because Taiwan generally doesn't engage, doesn't get to engage in a lot of multilateral forums because China because of China's opposition. But but it it's been uh, a economy, a member economy of APEC, um, and so you know the those three sort of themes that Thailand set out really were focused on you know promoting trade and investments open to all reconnecting the region particularly after covid-19 and then sort of pushing towards balanced inclusive and sustainable growth and i think these are themes that we've seen again and again and again in a lot of international forums but but were highlighted once again um like the G20 the apex um, ministerial joint statement where the leaders consensus after the the meeting included a, a paragraph on Ukraine that was very close to the one that was included in the G20 statement um, kept that same language that you know APEC is not really where we're going to resolve security issues but we recognize the the impact of this on global economies and that most of our, our members condemn um, the the this war and so I think coming away from APEC you know, is is a similar conclusions to the G20. Um, maybe uh, some interesting side notes um, related to the a- APEC conference. Uh, the United States is the next host of, of APEC, so that'll take place in San Francisco next year. And so the United States, um, which sent Vice President Kamala Harris to the summit, uh, Joe Biden returned to the United States, I believe, to attend the wedding of his granddaughter, um, which, uh, you know, I saw some commentary that that you know, Asia was going to take this as an insult that he left. I mean, I, I don't know about that. But Kamala Harris was there and sort of, you know, laid out what the United States intends to hope, hopes to do with uh, its hosting of APEC next year. And then again, that focused on those ideas of sustainable growth, growth. The U.S. mentioned decarbonization. So I think we should see more uh, engagement from the United States on those issues with Asia. Um, and then uh, I think... Again, just to bring up Taiwan, because I was there recently, uh, the Taiwanese representative at APEC was Morris Chung, who was the uh, founder of TSMC. He's no longer the chairman, but he's the founder. He's been Taiwan's representative to the conference since 2018. Uh, He apparently had a a conversation with uh, Xi Jinping, uh, categorized it as pleasant. Um, And so I I think that might be another sort of interesting note in that that hoped for sort of de-escalation of tensions in in the Taiwan Strait. That's certainly what the Taiwanese would prefer. So uh, I thought that was an interesting outcome. 
Um, do you have any sort of thoughts on 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 the APEC conference? Um, no, I mean none beyond what I what I uh, sort of set out at the outset on uh, you know Xi Jinping's. Uh, remarks uh, on sort of the traditional themes that that, that China mm -hmm. has pursued. It's interesting to sort of see that continuity despite the the economic and geopolitical changes that have uh, you know transpired due to the Russo-Ukrainian war and and the COVID-19 pandemic. Um but Katie, I think uh you know we we certainly you know ran through a gauntlet on all of these summits here. Uh, there's a lot of ground to cover. Uh, we didn't really even get into things like the, uh, you know, the United States and ASEAN declaring a comprehensive strategic partnership, uh, mm, which, yep. which which is sort of set out in a in a joint statement. Uh, there's nothing Asia loves more than comprehensive strategic partnerships, and so now the <laughs> United States and Asia uh, ASEAN have one. Um, but you know, we will be obviously back to talk about a lot of this stuff uh, on, uh, you know, in, in hopefully uh, greater detail on future episodes of the podcast. But it's hard to believe uh, that 2022 is almost at a close. We're almost here in December uh, for our American listeners. I uh, hope everybody has a happy Thanksgiving. Uh, and for our Asian listeners and everybody else, we will be back soon with more. Katie, thanks for fighting the jet lag and joining <laughs> me today to uh, talk about all of these uh, summits in Asia. It's always great to join you. It is always a pleasure. And I'll just say that I, I until now didn't bring up that there was a EU Central Asia uh, summit also last week. So, so many summits, so little time. Uh, it was a pleasure. Everybody's happy to be back doing diplomacy in person. Um, but on that note, um, make sure you subscribe to the Asia Geopolitics podcast so you can keep up with future episodes. And if you've been subscribed for a while, please do leave us a review. Uh, that really helps the show out. You can do that wherever you get your podcast. And we appreciate it equally. Uh, and... With that said, thanks for listening, and we'll be back soon with more.